Specialty Story, session number 142. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I'm excited that you are here today. If you're an undergrad or if you're not in medical school yet and you don't listen to the pre-med years or the MCAT podcast or the MCAT cars podcast or the old pre-meds podcast, there's lots of podcasts out there for you that come out almost every week on Wednesdays. So however you are listening to this, you can go listen to those. This week, I have a great guest, an emergency medicine trained hyperbaric medicine, undersea and hyperbaric medicine trained specialist. Now, Dr. Anthony Medoc has gone through a lot in his journey and found out what he loved. And a lot of it came from just his life. And that's the fun thing about medicine that I don't think a lot of you really understand is that you can take the passions that you have in your life and fit them in to medicine. And that's what Dr. Medoc does. And we talk all about that and more in our conversation today. So we start by really understanding how Dr. Medoc began on his journey to emergency medicine and then undersea and hyperbaric medicine. So without further ado, let's go ahead and ask him that question. You know, I think like a lot of people in emergency medicine, I didn't necessarily get a lot of exposure to it at my medical school. I went to medical school in San Francisco and there actually was no emergency medicine residency at that time. And it wasn't a required clerkship through uh, third year. So it wasn't until towards the end of third year when perhaps some friends told me that that was something they were considering that I decided I should try to put it on my radar. Um, And so I tried to set up an elective as soon as I could in fourth year. And when I did it, I just really felt um, just a, a connection with the people in the department. And I think that was the most important thing for me was just the energy of the ED, the people in the ED. And I just felt like it was just a very visceral feeling of that, that I belonged, essentially. What were you exploring before that time? Um, I think previous to that, I was still pretty drawn to just the idea of acutely ill patients. So I don't think I was really um, uh, very much enamored by outpatient medicine. So I was considering other things like perhaps being a hospitalist because Again, on the inpatient side of things, that was the area that really uh, captured my interest, um, or perhaps even uh, working in the critical care setting, again, with acutely ill inpatient setting type stuff. Yeah. And then for fellowship training, you're, you did uh, kind of undersea medicine, hyperbaric medicine. What led you to that? Because that's not a very common specialty. Yeah, absolutely. It isn't. Um, so... Uh, I did residency up at Highland Hospital in emergency medicine, and it's a four-year program. And a lot of the people, the faculty there, at least when I was there, were amongst the pioneers of um, bedside ultrasound. And um, they're also just great mentors and academicians. And so I pretty much realized, you know, early on in residency that I think I'd like to do an academic career. And um, even then, and even more so now, it's pretty clear to me that if I wanted to get a foothold in academic emergency medicine, I needed to have a niche or some area of specialty. So I kind of just did some soul searching to figure out what things would make me happy within emergency medicine in terms of an area of focus. 
And one of those was obviously ultrasound because I had so much exposure amongst some of the people that literally wrote some of the first books in bedside ultrasound um, in the emergency medicine setting in terms of my mentors at Highland. But the other thing that I was really interested in um, because of passion I had growing up in Southern California was scuba diving, um, snorkeling, and basically maritime medicine and undersea medicine. So I decided to do an elective at UC San Diego while I was a fourth year resident to try to figure out what niche I would want. And I did an elective in hyperbaric medicine at UC San Diego for uh, the better part of a month, and I loved it. Um, and so I ended up uh, applying for fellowships, both in uh, emergency ultrasound as well as in hyperbaric medicine. And ultimately, after interviewing and kind of you know consulting with my wife and everything, I decided to do a fellowship in hyperbaric medicine at UC San Diego. Um, and so it was kind of just basically blending a personal interest, which is, you know, um, the physiology of diving and the fact that I had a passion for scuba diving and wanting to have an area of specialty that would allow me to get into the career I wanted ultimately, which was academic emergency medicine. So let's talk about what exactly is hyperbaric medicine? What are you doing? Who are you treating? It it sounds like it sounds like you're just a doctor hanging out at the the dock, like waiting for <laughs> for the scuba divers to come up and go. Do you have the bends? Do you have the bends? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, and I think um, even myself as a resident physician that had an interest in it, it's not something that even in emergency medicine is taught very much. If you look through an emergency medicine textbook, you know the hyperbaric medicine chapter will be towards the back and will be, you know, rather brief. And it's not an area of focus of kind of a core emergency medicine curriculum, although it's part of it, it's just not a very big part, at least in most residencies. Um, so my thought back then when I was a bit more naive uh, as a resident of what hyperbaric medicine was, was kind of what you alluded to. And that is, it's basically six scuba divers, people that get bends or what we call decompression sickness or patients that get um, arterial gas embolisms from various types of pulmonary barotrauma in the setting of breathing compressed gas, acute, sick, you know, people that are still dripping wet, wearing their, you know, their, their fins and their, their neoprene wetsuits, et cetera. <laughs> and in fact, that is certainly a part of hyperbaric medicine, but the day-to-day um, is very much, there's a whole other aspect of hyperbaric medicine that is clinical hyperbaric medicine that has absolutely nothing to do with divers. And that's the area that on a day-to-day basis, we are running our chamber five, sometimes seven days a week. And we, you know, will encounter divers perhaps a couple of times per month. The other, you know, 20 plus days of the month, we're treating patients with um, chronic refractory osteomyelitis or cancer survivors that have uh, just wounds that won't heal from the radiation therapy they've received sometimes decades ago, um, or plastic surgery cases that uh, basically perhaps someone has some type of um, facial flap or breast reconstruction, et cetera, and that plastic sur- surgery flap becomes very tenuous, um, is uh, in danger of essentially necrosing and sloughing off. And so the surgeons will call us and we have protocols to put these patients in the hyperbaric chamber to try to augment wound healing and help preserve some of these at-risk tissues. And so on a day-to-day basis, uh, we do much more clinical hyperbaric medicine than we do undersea slash diving medicine. But the cool thing is it encompasses both. And in fact, our biggest uh, or the national or I should say international organization um, changed its name a number of years ago to the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society because you know decades ago, it was the folks that were into the undersea diving medicine, and there was a whole different um, cadre of people that were into the clinical hyperbarics. And ultimately, they formed one society that addresses um, the interests of both of those uh, groups of providers. And so on a day-to-day basis, I do mainly the clinical hyperbaric medicine, 
but we're available 24-7 for diving emergencies um, all year long. When a student is listening to this and they hear a chamber and hyperbaric, explain exactly what what kind of room you're in? What I, I've seen the equipment because I've I've been in these uh, in these settings before through the Air sure. Force. But sure. what what is what do these things look like, and what exactly is a patient doing inside of a chamber? Okay, that's a, a very good question. Um, uh, you know, without getting into too much of the details, there are uh, essentially two uh, broad categories of chambers. There are the type of chambers that accommodate a single individual, and those are called monoplace hyperbaric chambers. So it's basically one person that lays, you know, semi-recumbent in, uh, you know, uh, a 36 to 42-inch acrylic tube. Um, and they're in there by themselves, and there's a chamber operator that... Uh, has the controls and everything outside of the chamber, and there's no one physically in there with the patient themselves. And since it's a clear acrylic tube, usually there are TV monitors, et cetera, um, so that patients can kind of watch a movie, et cetera, or nap, or they can bring a book in with them and they can read. But because it is a hyperbaric environment, it's high pressure and also high oxygen. And so essentially, you can't really bring any electronics in there. So you can't bring your tablet computer, you can't bring your iPhone, your Apple Watch, etc., because any of those things, A, could potentially be damaged from the high pressure, or B, more importantly, um, because we're in a high pressure, high oxygen environment, all you need is an ignition source, and unfortunately, you have an explosion. And so, we're very, very vigilant about what goes in the chamber, and specifically, we don't allow any type of uh, synthetic um, uh, fibers in terms of clothing, so we generally have patients will check in and put on cotton scrubs. And then they can go in with some reading material, but no watches, no hearing aids, no electronic devices um, uh, in terms of uh, any hyperbaric chamber. And stepping back as to what you alluded to, what they look like, et cetera, the monoplace type, basically just like like a giant acrylic tube with uh, steel doors on either side that are closed as the patient goes in and starts their treatment. At UC San Diego, we have what's called a multi-place hyperbaric chamber that um, it was built, you know, decades ago. So it's a little bit kind of, I guess we'll call it retro looking in that <laughs> it kind of resembles, uh, I guess you could say, you know, to, to someone who's not a, a naval individual, kind of submarine-like. It's a, mm. a giant tube about uh, six feet across and 21 feet long. Uh, it's steel, not acrylic. And with these types of multi-place chambers, multiple patients and a staff member goes inside at one time and we treat three, four, five, sometimes up to six patients at a time with each treatment, which we often just refer to as a dive. So with each dive, um, we have multiple patients and a staff member in there in our particular facility. But many facilities um, will use these monoplace chambers where it's one patient and no staff member. Uh, and it'll just look like uh, an acrylic tube, whereas ours is kind of painted kind of Uh, a yellow cream color. So it kind of looks like a yellow submarine, a giant, you know, (laughs) just imagine a giant soda can that's resting on its side. That's about 21 feet long and six feet across. Wow. And we all sing, uh, we all live in a yellow submarine because that's, that's right. Yellow. That's what you do. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, so for a student listening to this, who's like, well, that sounds really cool. But I don't want to live on the coast like you do. I want to live in the middle of the country. Can you sure. can you practice hyperbaric and undersea medicine in the middle of a country? It's a great question. And I think it's something that does come up because, again, people just assume since I live, you know, in Southern California, that this is very much a regional thing. And um, because of what we talked about a little bit ago in terms of the fact that 
on a day-to-day basis, most hyperbaric medicine practices really don't involve divers much at all, much to my dismay, because those are the patients that I find amongst the most interesting. Uh, On a day-to-day basis, we're taking care of diabetics. We're taking care of people with peripheral arterial disease. We're taking care of people that uh, are cancer survivors or are still battling various head and neck cancers, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, those types of individuals live everywhere. They live everywhere throughout the country and everywhere throughout the world. So um, there are many very robust academic and community practices located in the Midwest, um, East Coast, West Coast, and everywhere in between. And there are patients who go scuba scuba diving and then fly home the same day. So you still might see those patients too. Actually, you're absolutely right. I forgot (laughs) to mention that in this whole environment of, you know, it being so readily, um, uh, you know, booking travel to go into exotic locales, you can be based in, you know, uh, in in the middle of the country and you can be, you know, scuba diving in the Bahamas within just, you know, uh, less than 24 hours and certainly come right back. And as in terms of the pathophysiology of decompression sickness or bends, it's oftentimes that if people fly too promptly after diving that they can get symptoms. And so when they land home in Idaho or wherever they may live, that's when they may come seek your expertise because I didn't have symptoms before, but I took a flight and now I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. With my my Air Force training, we we did a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's always uh, it's a, a fun a fun little specialty, a fun little niche that you found yourself in. Yeah, it's it's great. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good undersea and hyperbaric medicine physician? Um, I would say you know you, you have to you have to be able to think on your feet because you know kind of like. I'm not an anesthesiologist, but, you know, you hear anesthesiologists sometimes talk about the fact that oftentimes when things are going according to plan, it can be fairly stable and chill and not very stressful because you've done this before, you know how to manage the airway, you know how to take care of things that you anticipate. But when stuff starts to go sideways in the operating room, that's when an anesthesiologist can really kind of show their colors and show their mettle in terms of what they're capable of doing and they're expert at that. And hyperbaric medicine, in my opinion, is kind of the same way. When everything's going smooth and people in the chamber, they're coming and going, they're not having any adverse effect, et cetera, it can be a good time just to, you know, get caught up on other stuff or see wound care patients simultaneously while the chamber is operating with our hyperbaric patients because we have a wound center as well. Um, But on occasion, things go wrong and people can have seizures in the chamber. People become hypoglycemic in the chamber. Our particular chamber, we take pride in the fact that we're a 24-7 operation and we drill with we uh, deal with and will accept critically ill patients on drips, on a ventilator, et cetera. And those types of patients are by definition unstable and they can often become more unstable in the chamber. So you really have to have your wits about you, particularly if you don't exclude critically ill patients, which some chambers and some facilities do just simply because they just don't have um, the staff and the training to deal with those patients. But at our center, we take all comers. And so you have to be able to think on your feet and very quickly go from everything's calm, smooth to oh no, you know, there's something going on and I'm expected to take care of it. So you have to be able to think on your feet and remain calm in a stressful situation. For the students who are very interested in doing procedures, how procedure heavy, if at all, is underseen hyperbaric medicine? Well, um, I would say, you know, to be totally truthful, just in terms of the hyperbaric piece, it's not uh, very procedure heavy at all. Many of People that do hyperbaric medicine also do wound care because a lot of what we do in hyperbaric medicine is we treat patients that have refractory non-healing wounds for months, sometimes years, 
And we take pride in the fact that oftentimes, but of course not always, we can get those patients to heal. And so in addition to doing the hyperbaric medicine piece, we are often doing procedures related to those wounds. In other words, grafting those wounds, um, applying biosynthetic materials to try to help stimulate wound healing, doing surgical wound debridements in the office, et cetera. So there's a lot of wound type procedures, but from the hyperbaric medicine piece, there's not a lot of procedures other than occasionally we'll be expected to do something called a myringotomy, where as you might imagine, when you put someone in a hyperbaric chamber of any type and you pressurize it to somewhere between usually 45 feet of seawater or 60 feet of seawater, there's going to be a change in pressure that can lead to barotrauma to the tympanic membrane. And if you have someone that is um, basically um, uh, obtunded, uh, unconscious, or ventilated, they're not going to be able to valsalva and clear their ears and equilibrate that middle ear pressure. And as a result, you can uh, uh, cause iatrogenic barotrauma to the ears. And so to mitigate that risk, some centers will advocate for doing therapeutic meringotomies before you put someone in the chamber. So you basically can potentially anesthetize the area and then make a small perforation in an anatomically safe area so that that pressure can equilibrate on its own. And then that small opening will heal spontaneously in the coming weeks. So that's a procedure we do, but we don't do it frequently, to be totally truthful. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, if someone decompensates while in the chamber with all these changes in pressure, the other thing we always worry about is barotrauma, specifically pulmonary barotrauma, specifically pneumothorax. So if someone develops pneumothorax or has a pneumothorax in chamber, then the physician would be expected to pressurize and what we say would be lock into the chamber. So in other words, enter in the chamber, pressurize to the same uh, treatment pressure that the patient is in and then go in there and put in a chest tube, for example. Does that happen often? No, but it definitely has to be within your skill set if you're going to be um, supervising hyperbaric treatments. Yeah. I, I, I can only imagine the student listening to this going, oh, entering a chamber and pressurizing, <laughs> and all they're, they're picturing is like NASA and being in space <laughs> and pressurizing yeah. before they go out for a spacewalk. Uh, it's definitely a, a different world in the, the hyperbaric medicine uh, chambers, so that's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of overlap. A lot of people that are interested in aviation medicine or aerospace medicine um, do training in hyperbarics because there are a lot of similarities, mm -hmm. as you say, in terms of astronauts and things of that nature, because you are and someone does kind of a, an extravehicular kind of activity or a kind of a spacewalk, so to speak, there's a dramatic change in pressures. So those are all, they're all, there are types of decompression sickness that can occur in those environments as well. So there are a lot of parallels there. Yeah. Yeah. In my time as a flight surgeon, we, we used to describe it as normal physiology in an abnormal environment. And so yeah. obviously being up in the air with hyperbaric medicine, you're down below the, the water. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. What does the the training path look like to become a, a underseeing hyperbaric medicine physician? Is it is it only through emergency medicine, or can you come from several different specialties? That is an excellent question, and uh, it's definitely the latter. Um, our program and our faculty at UC San Diego are all exclusively. Um, essentially, all of us are full time emergency medicine physicians, and we all do you know anywhere from two or three or up to seven or eight weeks of hyperbaric medicine spread throughout the academic year. Um, so at our institution, all of our faculty are EM trained. However, um, we have anywhere between two and actually for the past couple of years, four uh, hyperbaric medicine fellows. And for example, this year is a good example. We have two emergency medicine trained physicians. We have one family medicine trained physician. And in fact, for the first time that I know of at our training program, we actually have one physician, one fellow that trained as a pathologist. 
and is doing hyperbaric medicine. And, um, and it's actually really cool to work with the pathologist because he sees, th- sees things from a different perspective, having a very different residency training, but he also has a passion and interest for diving medicine. And so, you know, he's fit in wonderfully. So it can be many different specialties. We've trained internists, we've trained anesthesiologists, um, family physicians, now pathology, emergency medicine. So it's quite open. And the training in terms of what it is, it's a one-year ACGME uh, accredited um, a fellowship training program. So there is a board certification exam that one takes at the end, and then you research, you know, every 10 years. How competitive is it? Uh, for hyperbaric medicine training spots? Yeah. Um, I guess it's kind of hard to, I guess, uh, quantify or whatnot, but I will say that um, as you alluded to earlier in, in, in our conversation, it is definitely not a super common path that is taken. Um, so in that regard, you might expect it to be not as competitive. However, uh, proportion to that, there's not that many training programs. I think fellowship program wise is on the order of six or seven in the country. Um, and so each of those might have anywhere between one, two or four spots. So I'd say it's perhaps moderately competitive simply because there's not a ton of spots, but then again, it's not like people going into interventional cardiology where you have hundreds of, of people that are applying. So the pool is smaller. Yeah. For the osteopathic student listening to this or resident listening to this, do you see any anything that they have to do to overcome any negative bias towards osteopaths? You know, uh, from the perspective of of hyperbaric medicine, I don't believe so. Um, in fact, I think I think one of the trainees that we have right now, one of our current four, is an osteopathic physician. I believe I have to double check that. But I mean, whether we do or don't this particular year, um, I don't see it as an issue at all. To be truthful, uh, um, I, I don't see it to be uh, any particular obstacle in any way. Yeah, good. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into it? Um, hmm. Well, I will say before I came down for my elective, I was expecting to just do a lot more of the diving medicine piece. Um, and I didn't realize that there was so much clinical hyperbaric medicine that was separate from the diving medicine. Um, and I guess I didn't know that coming in. And initially I thought, well, you know, there are other parts of hyperbaric medicine too, that don't have to do with divers. It still revolve around acutely ill patients like carbon monoxide poisoning patients. We see those that come through the ED and those are very fascinating and, and interesting and potentially very sick. So I like that kind of stuff. But I guess what I didn't know then that perhaps I wish I knew more was that um, a lot of hyperbaric medicine is not necessarily going to be always the acutely ill um, um, in extremis kind of individual, which is Mm -hmm. what I was attracted to way back when uh, to emergency medicine. But to be truthful, now that I'm in my mid-40s, I kind of like the continuity of care and the different pace on what I do on a day-to-day basis in the emergency department because I find it really complements different skill sets that I have. And um, it uh, definitely allows for a little bit less stress on a day-to-day basis as opposed to being full-time in the ED. So it's actually evolved really nicely into my career as I, you know, move into kind of the mid-phase career of my, uh, of my practice. Yeah. For the future primary care doc listening to this, what do you wish they knew about hyperbaric medicine, undersea medicine to, to better help their patients and help you in the future? I think that's a really, really great question because one of the problems and the frustrations in this field is that, again, as you've already stated a couple of times, we've talked about this, it's a very subspecialty niche area and it's not really integrated into 
any um, residency training program, minimally so in emergency medicine, um, but internal medicine physicians or surgeons, they don't really know a lot about what we do. So we're kind of a black box. And if the particular facility or the or the community where one practices in primary care, the, the hyperbaric program is not very prominent or not very well, kind of doesn't have their name out there. You might not even know there's a hyperbaric chamber right down the street. So the thing I would encourage the primary care providers out there or the soon-to-be primary care physicians to know is that, um, you know, we do a lot with non-healing wounds and not all wounds need to be treated in a hyperbaric chamber, but most hyperbaric physicians have training in wound care and they have the time and the expertise to kind of help with those things. Um, and particularly with diabetics, uh, we can really add a lot to the care. So I would say in the primary care world, with your diabetic patients that are having issues with neuropathy and wounds that aren't healing, um, you know, give consideration and think about perhaps might this patient benefit from a course of hyperbaric therapy. And then even just whether they do or don't, that's our issue as a hyperbaric physician to, to, um, to determine if ultimately risks and benefits are in the patient's favor. But it all starts with the primary care physician or the referring physician thinking about, hey, this patient could potentially be a candidate. And then that's when you put in a referral. We can do a full evaluation to decide, you know, this patient's a candidate or this patient's not a candidate. And we can try to help in that regard. I'm sure it varies widely, but in general, how do insurers view hyperbaric medicine? Are they pretty friendly in terms of paying for it? That's a really good question as well. Very insightful. And, um, you know, uh, the dreaded answer is it depends. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to be uh, sarcastic, but I yep. mean, it, it really does depend. Um, I will say this, that um, there, in addition to, we talked at the beginning of this, there are two, you know, broad categories of chambers, those that accommodate one individual and those that accommodate, accommodate multiple individuals. There are also different types of hyperbaric centers. There are some hyperbaric centers like ours that is literally in the basement of a tertiary referral academic university hospital. And um, there are also centers out there that are quote unquote freestanding. Some of the freestanding centers, they kind of will um, abide by different rules. And by that, I mean, as opposed to only dealing with uh, indications and taking patients where there is some semblance of medical evidence and literature to support using hyperbarics um, and therefore applying for authorization and whatnot through insurers, some freestanding centers don't deal with insurers at all. And they will just allow patients that have the resources to pay directly for their hyperbaric treatment whether or not an insurer will cover it becomes moot uh, because if one has the resources, um, basically a physician can put somebody in the chamber and treat them whether or not there's any scientific evidence because they don't have to worry about approval from any insurer. So I think it varies. We're very vigilant and we only treat the indications in which there is a body of literature to support it. And I would say most um, reputable or all reputable hyperbaric centers out there are going to play by that same rule book. And the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society publishes a literature review of all the approved indications um, every three or four years. And the most recent uh, edition just came out last year. And it has, you know, on the order of basically 13 approved indications um, that run the gamut from, you know, the bends, decompression sickness, to radiation injury from cancer, to sudden sensory neural hearing loss, um, central retinal artery occlusion, carbon monoxide poisoning, and on and on and on. And in short, in terms of us, our center, if we stick to those approved indications and um, basically rely upon the existing literature and your documentation supports that, in general, the insurers are amenable to it. But 
each particular third party insurance company kind of has its own set of rules. And so you have to have good administrative support to know, you know, which indication will be approved and perhaps which won't. So part of it depends on what the individual uh, funding is from your patient. Yeah. Very cool. What do you like the most about being an underseeing hyperbaric medicine physician? I think what I like most is the fact that, again, on a day-to-day basis, I am a emergency physician. And so I deal with emergency medicine type stuff. People are super sick and you have to worry about managing airways and it's very, very stressful. Um, And it uses a particular skill set and it relies on a particular set of traits in an individual and me as a provider. But I've found that when I'm working in the hyperbaric chamber, I really like the different pace. I really like the ability to see patients come and go, you know, day after day, week after week, and see them progress and get better. Um, And uh, that's not something that in general we see in the emergency department. So I guess more succinct answer to your question would be, I like the fact that my practice at the hyperbaric chamber very much complements and is quite different than uh, what I do on a day-to-day basis in the emergency department. So I like the continuity of care. Uh, I like the fact that we get to become experts in an area of uh, folks with diving and undersea medicine. And to be honest, much to my surprise, I've actually grown to enjoy doing the wound care and helping people avoid amputations and uh, into limb salvage, which is a big part of what we do in kind of the clinical hyperbaric world. Yeah. What do you like the least? Um, I would say what I like the least is probably the same thing that I like the least in the ED. And that is sometimes the charting burden is kind of brutal. Um, and although in emergency medicine, I don't really worry as much about getting authorization and insurance issues, et cetera. I think that is more uniquely a problem on the hyperbaric medicine side of things. We may get a consultation, see a patient that we think we can actually really help, but for whatever reason, the uh, patient's insurance won't authorize it. And then we get in a real bind where we want to offer a service. We think we can help the patient get better. But as much as I'd like to say, well, let's just do it gratis. Um, we just can't uh, just because of rules that go above and beyond me. Um, and so I think frustrations with uh, insurance and getting authorization, um, which only seems to be getting worse, unfortunately, is a frustration that I have in the hyperbaric department that I don't have in the ED. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of hyperbaric medicine that a student who may be interested in it should be aware of? I think one of the things that's exciting is that um, the new areas and applications uh, in term that are perhaps coming down the pipe. Right now, we're a part of a uh, multi-center um, uh, randomized trial looking at the efficacy of hyperbaric medicine for traumatic brain injury, severe traumatic brain injury, in fact. And um, I'm very excited to see moving forward over the next couple of years, if that body of uh, if that data will demonstrate evidence to support uh, the use of hyperbarics for traumatic brain injury patients. Um, and I know that's something that is getting a lot of media attention with our service members that are coming back from tours abroad and being injured and having deficits and, and disability that prevents them from integrating back into kind of normal post-military life. But this can also be an issue, obviously, for people in severe car accidents and, you know, civilians as well as military service members as well. And if we can offer something to where right now there's not really a lot of other options in terms of treatment, I think that'd be very exciting. And it would allow the field to grow because as opposed to primarily just, you know, treating divers or diabetics or patients that are suffering from or have battled cancers, now you're talking about adding a whole nother population of patients such as traumatic brain injury patients. And again, I don't know that it's going to pan out, but if it does, it could be very exciting. Yeah. 
If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a, a emergency medicine physician with moonlighting as a hyperbaric medicine physician as well? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yes, I think. Uh, and again, I think as I age and move further along in my career, the more I'm glad I did it yeah. because uh, it was only, I say only, but it, it was a one-year fellowship. Some fellowships, obviously, in other fields are two, three plus years in emergency medicine. If one does medical toxicology or um, some uh, other uh, uh, specialties such as pediatric emergency medicine, that's multiple years. And so mine was only quote unquote one year. And for that one year, the return on my investment has been great. It's really allowed me to continue to you know um, get excited about going to the ED because I go a little bit less than some of my other colleagues because some of my clinical work is down in the chamber. I get to interface with the fellows be involved in research that really has nothing to do with emergency medicine. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, I also like the way the pace and the work in the hyperbaric chamber is very different and kind of complements the things that I do uh, in the emergency department. So um, I very much am glad that I did it because I think it's going to allow me to have an even longer career. Yeah. For the student listening to this, thinking that hyperbaric medicine sounds really cool and they want to check it out, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for them to go seek out some mentors or shadowing opportunities or, or anything else? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, if depending on where you go to school, you have a hyperbaric program, um, you may want to look up and see in your medical school catalog if they offer an elective. We actually offer an elective and we accept away students, of course. Um, for fourth year. So there are fourth year students that come and spend four weeks with us um, to do an elective in hyperbaric medicine. And they get exposed to diving medicine. They get exposed to wound care. They get exposed to running the chamber. And I think they really enjoy it. Uh, and I'm sure we're not the only um, uh, uh, medical center in the country that offers that. So I would say check with your home institution to see if perhaps you have a chamber. And then if perhaps they offer a fourth year elective that you can do during medical school, because it's a nice time because A, it's not a very onerous, crazy, long hour rotation. So it's a good fourth year rotation. Um, it's fun. It's something you likely might not be able to have the opportunity to do again moving forward. And you just might be surprised how much you like it. And even if you decide you don't want to do a whole another year fellowship, that's okay. Because if you go on to become a general surgeon, an otolaryngologist, a primary care physician, you'll at least have some idea of which of your patients might benefit from being sent over to the hyperbaric uh, department for a consultation to see if maybe we can help you with some problem that you're having difficulty and a challenge with with your patient in whatever practice you may have. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Medoc, who's been out of training now for 13 years as an emergency medicine undersea and hyperbaric medicine trained specialist. So lots of interesting things going on in the world with hyperbaric medicine, hyperbaric chambers, really trying to understand how that works and what it works for and much more. So hopefully you got a lot out of this. And, and as I mentioned in the beginning, if there's something in your life that you are either scared that you're going to lose going into medicine or you, you are really passionate about it and you want to try to fit it into medicine somehow, you can do that. Right? There are physicians out there who work at major chemical plants and, and factories and everything else because those people who are working in those plants and, and working at a sports team or wherever, right? they need physicians. And so whatever you're passionate about, wherever you are coming from, however you want to practice medicine, you can practice medicine. None of this is cookie cutter. So I hope that really got across to you today. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 
This is MedEd Media.